Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm very happy to say I'm joined by two of MotoGP and Motorcycle Racing's finest journalists, Mr. David Emmett of MotoMatters.com and Mr. Stephen English of World Superbike Stardom. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Hello, Neil. Hi, Neil. Good to see you again. Good to see you, gentlemen. And uh, it's worth saying that we're tucked away in the bowels of the uh, the Pullhouse in Jordi, just ahead of the, the 2017 Super Prestigio uh, event. And we are here to bring you basically our best of MotoGP 2017. This is going to be a review show of what was quite a stunning year. It certainly was. Bowels is um, uh, an appropriate word, given that we keep on uh, uh, hearing the toilets going off in the background. So if you hear a strange noise, then that's what, uh, uh, that's what it is. Uh, it was. It's been a fantastic year. It's been uh, absolutely superb. I mean, we thought we, we, we had a good year last year, but it just seems like the field is even more competitive this year. Yeah, maybe we didn't quite have the variety of uh, nine different winners that we had in 2016, Steve. But uh, in terms of racing... And in terms of a championship that went all the way down to the wire, uh, this year really had everything. Yeah, it's hard to find a series that consistently delivers like MotoGP. Every race seems to be better than the last. It seems to give us more to talk about every week. And uh, we're really going through a golden age of it. And 2017, as you said, didn't have the variety of what we had in the past, but it certainly had its fair share of surprises. Yeah, and as you say, one of those big surprises, I guess, has to be uh, one of the main men of the year, uh, Andrea Vizioso. None of us really saw that coming, but we might uh, get into that in a little more depth uh, later on. Um, David, would you say this uh, this kind of generation of MotoGP is uh, comparable with, say, the golden age of the late 80s and early 90s? I think it's better than the golden age than with the late 80s and early 90s, just basically because there's more competitive bikes on the grid. Uh, I mean, there was fantastic racing in uh, between 88 and 93. I think also the, the nostalgia makes us forget that there were also some fairly tedious races in there as well. Um, we just remember the high points, not the low points. But if you look at the depth of field, I think there are more ca riders capable of winning. There are more bikes which are competitive. Uh, the satellite bikes are definitely more competitive than they were in uh, sort of 88, 89, 90. Uh, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think this is absolutely comparable and uh, I think it's probably better. Is that just down to depth of talent, Steve, do you think? Is it down to manufacturer involvement? Uh, are the rules you know, that Dorna have tweaked recently, are they just right at the moment? Uh, what's the reason behind all this? I think it's all of the above. I think it's very easy for bike racing fans just to point that, let's say the spec ECU that was introduced, let's say changing to Michelin's, let's say the fact that Dorna's putting more money behind all the teams, let's say all the riders having more time training on bikes now compared to what they were doing in the past. It's all of those factors rather than any single factor. And I think that's the one thing that we all need to realise and, and really to understand about where GP is right now is that it's just a confluence of all those circumstances coming together. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the biggest change were the, uh, the, the financial sort of rules, if you like, the, the financial arrangements which were arranged, uh, arranged in... Uh, I think 2014, where Dorna uh, agreed with private teams and with the factories that the factories would be prepared to uh, provide bikes at a, uh, at a limited price, um, that they'd be prepared to uh, supply competitive bikes. Uh, and that's that, that, to me, is, is what has made this. And also, it's just the, the sport is professionalised. Like every single sport, um, uh, like every single sport we have, sport professionalises and what happens is uh, the riders get better, the gaps between the best and the nearly best get smaller 
the the best athlete in every sport will always uh, will always come out on top. It's just that uh, as sport professionalizes, the gaps get smaller at the front, and that makes for fantastic entertainment. One point that's going to be highly controversial, Neil, but what you're looking at right now is. In the golden era that we all look back to between 88 and 93, in most races, we look at the spectacular crashes. We look at a couple of riders at the front. There was always like five, six really unbelievable talents, but there weren't that many races where we had five or six different guys at the front. One week it would be Schwantz against Rainey. The next week Dune would be in there. The next week, whoever it was, it was very rare that all five, six of those guys were all actually battling at the front. And what we're seeing now is really what, when we talk in World Superbikes, we talk about how the biggest thing that's needed is investment into each of the teams to try and close that gap up a little bit. They're looking at it where there's two riders up at the front each week. They need to have a, a third and a fourth. They can get into that fight. And that's a lot more similar to the golden era in GP than where we are right now in GP. And I think if you were to look at 88 to 93, We'll all look at it and we'll look at that collection of superstar riders, absolute legends, all at the peak of their abilities. But the machinery wasn't at the peak for what we have now, where every bike works at every track now in GP, give or take. We don't have it where you know Ducati will turn up at one week, be able to win races, and with the exception of Phillip Island, be nowhere the next week. Same with Honda, same with whoever. Everyone's able to get their bike into a pretty, pretty good operating window at every track. And it's where a tenth of a second makes a big difference where you can go from hero to zero in GP now, whereas in that golden era, tenth of a second didn't really make that difference. Yeah, I agree. Certainly when you look at uh, down the field, the top 15, how close they finished together. I think this year was uh, an absolute record in terms of how close uh, first to 15th was uh, at the end of a race. I think there were six occasions where it was less than 35 seconds to cover all the point scoring positions. And I think I was going through the records at the end of the year that had only happened four times in the previous 68 years of Grand Prix racing, which really says quite a lot. Um, and yeah, as you said, I mean, there were races like Silverstone or Aragon where it wasn't just two or three guys at the front. It was a gaggle of eight guys and you had basically the leader looking over his shoulder and thinking, well, if I drop the pace for one or two laps, I basically could find myself in, in, in sixth or, or eighth, you know, rather than just second or third as it had been in, say, previous years. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that has definitely been the biggest difference. We're all, we're all competitive. Exactly. So we're going to move on. Basically, we have got five categories. I think we've used this, uh, this structure in previous uh, review podcasts. Uh, five structures, sorry, five categories. We're each going to make uh, our own decisions. Uh, we have the rider of the year, the surprise of the year, the disappointment of the year, the race of the year, and the overtake of the year. Okay. Now, I imagine we're going to agree on certain matters and disagree on others, which is fine. So let's start at the rider of the year. Now, Mark Marquez won his fourth Premier Class World title, the youngest man ever to do that. Um, he had some incredible races along the way, some incredible feats. I'm thinking uh, mostly that uh, that incredible save at uh, Valencia in the final race of the year. Uh, made it over 95 miles an hour. Um, but there were other guys that maybe were there that we didn't expect. We all probably had Marquez down as the favourite or one of the favourites in uh, in January or in March. But uh, the championship didn't quite play out how we thought. So, David, I'm going to ask you first, who was your rider of 2017? Well, I mean, there's the best rider of the year, and that's Mark Marquez. It's as simple as, as simple as that. But I don't think he was the rider of the year. For me, the, my, my rider of the year was Andrea Dovizioso just because he was so... Um, uh, the way he won 
though I mean he he won these races through brains just through intelligence and thinking about it and figuring it out and he found um it, he found that little bit of sharpness that he'd been missing in his racing um where he kept on losing out on overtaking battles this year we saw him winning overtaking battles uh, he had that extra aggression so for me I, I think it turned him into a very complete racer and also very much a racer for this era where we have um, uh, tyres that go off where tyre selection is important where throttle management is, is important where understanding how uh, grip develops through a race is important where you actually have to think about your racing all great racers are intelligent and to me Andrea Dovicioso came out as the most intelligent racer of, uh, of this year. Um, also, the whole backstory about him uh, finding his, uh, working on his on the mental side of his racing, everything that's just been fascinating. That definitely for me makes him the rider of the year. Okay, interesting. This may be a category that we're all in uh, agreement over. But uh, Steve, for you, I think for all of us, Dovi is the big surprise of the year. He's the guy that none of us saw coming in as a title contender, and he'd be certainly my rider of the year but that being said mark marquez it's impossible for mark to be the rider of the year because we expect him to win the whole time if he meets expectations he can't be the rider of the year he's just doing exactly what we expect him to do and this year even with how the honda was he was still expected to win he managed to win it was just ticking the boxes for mission objective i remember i was talking to a few riders in the past about what's what is it that drives them? Is it the the fear of not meeting their expectations or the joy of winning? And for pretty much all of the ultimate top tier riders, it's not the joy of winning that gets them up in the morning. It's the fear of someone else being able to do it. Mark this year, he had to have that fear going up against Dovi. There was times where Dovi had so much momentum, his back-to-back wins, particularly if you look at what happened at the end of the season, that win in, in Motegi, that was a big momentum shifter and it could have been just a real key point in, in, in what could have been an eventual championship victory. But ultimately, Mark was able to see off the threat. But that being said, as I said at the start, Dovi's the rider of the year because he exceeded expectations so much. It's worth also mentioning Juan Mir and Moto3 because we, we'll, we did a top 10 riders of the year after the Hareth test, just between ourselves off air. And I had Juan Mir number three. Like he was unbelievable this year. He but, was exceptional. But for me, Dovi's the rider of the year. I'm going to agree with both of you and uh, say that, that uh, Dovi really um did things that i didn't realize i didn't think were possible uh, from him in the past um and as you said david it was not just how he did it but it was kind of the the sort of the aggression that he showed in certain uh, in certain battles with marquez you know i never had davi done as a real brawler as a kind of you know a fighter um and those wins in austria and in Mategi were really gloves off stuff and superb to watch and it was just yeah it was a joy to behold really it, it certainly was, and I think Steve makes a very good point about the the the, the pass at Mategi because uh, Mark could write off the pass at uh, Austria as a fluke, as a one-off. To be beaten twice in the last corner, in the last corner overtakes, I think that sort of spooked Marquez a little bit because that was it, it's no longer just a lucky fluke. It was uh, that was planned and thought through and managed that was definitely that was definitely the most impressive but again and Juan Mir we have to mention Juan Mir just because um, uh, the things that he did he was unlucky he almost managed to equal the uh, the number of records uh, the, the number of races won in in the junior category by but if he hadn't been taken out by I think Guevara uh, Ramirez oh yeah yeah Ramirez yeah 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 so you know he's, he's sorry wide. Rodrigo 
Rodrigo. Sorry, yes. apologies. So if he's not if he's not run wide by Rodrigo, then you've got to think he was going to be um, uh, up for eleven wins in the season. And again, it, it, it was the same thing. It was just doing it with his intelligence. With you could see him thinking the races. You could see him uh, uh, waiting, always making sure he was in the top five, always being there, um, always uh, being in the right place at the right time, ready to strike, um, and, and and doing so, always able able to win at the end of the race. Absolutely. And without very many poles. I think he got one or two poles um, all year. I think... Uh, one, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Malaysia, exactly. I think it was. Exactly. So, you know, again, it's like, who cares about qualifying? It's about the race. It's the race that matters. Yeah. Just going back to David Sewell briefly, you did a really interesting interview with him uh, a few weeks back. Um he has mentioned this mental coach that he has consulted. He began consulting, say, two years ago or, or maybe a little less than About that. About 18 months ago. 18 I months ago, so. yeah. Um, I spoke to Davide Tordotzi recently and he was saying that it's not just that, it's kind of the, the continuity of working with his crew chief and working with all the same guys in his garage. There's a kind of, uh, they've just built up so much momentum and so much understanding between one another that, uh, managing a weekend is now just a lot more intelligent a lot more patient than it used to be is that one of the the sort of the pivotal is that one of the cornerstones behind uh, this year's success do you think yeah absolutely i mean the thing that um uh, in the interview that dovi was really trying to say was this is not about you know me finding one person this is about all of the people i work with it's about the way that i work with them together concentrating being able to focus that's what made the real difference it really is teamwork and you know the long game has paid off for um uh, has paid off for Dobby you know 2013 uh, no one wanted that Ducati ride really but he just worked his appendages off and that he's got the reward the reward was actually was actually getting to getting to it okay excellent so moving swiftly on we were all in agreement over the the first category but i fear that that was maybe uh, that was unique uh, to this podcast because we're going to move on to the second which is the surprise of the year and we are limiting this solely to the the three grand prix classes um so steve what was your surprise of 2017 well my surprise of 2017 was definitely not one that you are going to share nico antonelli in moto 3 just being so poor on the io bike I think we've all seen speed from Antonelli over the years. We've seen him able to win races. We've seen him able to be a front runner on pretty much every bike he's ridden. He goes to the top team in Moto3. And I'll be honest, I've put a, a sneaky outside bet in him as an each way for the championship, thinking, well, he's on an IO. Of course, it's going to pay out for top four in the championship. And I'll tell you what, the bookies talk my money on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, that is partly... Antonelli's fault and partly KTM's fault. Obviously, KTM got caught out in Moto3 by Honda when Honda turned up at the Qatar test with a uh, with a brand new engine, which um, uh, seemed to have sort of about 150 more horsepower than uh, than the KTM had. Uh, also, Antonelli, because I, I interviewed Aki Io at the start of the year about you know about talent and all the rest of it, and he was he said that he would have been sort of disappointed in Antonelli because he'd expecting Antonelli to be much more of a fighter to be able to work, and he was trying to get him to work into that work process. And he just couldn't do it. Uh, and the way that Antonelli worked, he couldn't really get it to gel with the uh, with the team. And that's why uh, team is such an important part of most. It's an individual sport, but it's an individual sport as part of a uh, of a greater team. But I mean, you know, Antonelli wasn't exactly setting the world alight in 2016. He had a shocker of a year, and here he was going to the world championship winning team. So, I mean, uh, is this? Really a big surprise? Well, I'll be honest, it was for me just because when we came here last year, we're sitting in the middle of Barcelona for the Super Prestige. When I remember we were talking about this last year and, you know, 
I thought there was a chance that I might just solve it and find the uh, find the solution. And uh, you know, I I was proven pretty wrong on that. But if I was looking at the MotoGP class, there's obviously a lot of a lot of people that you could pick from that have been uh, a disappointment and a surprising and disappointment. And, and shall we we'll move, move on, on to, to David's just to get the ball rolling on the GP class. The surprise for me is fairly obvious, really. I mean, Joan Zarco, uh, Moto two. Um, has the last Moto Two champion to come to uh, MotoGP was Tito Rabat, and Tito Rabat has been uh, circulating very much at the back. Jean Zarco gets off the starting gate on his in his first race, and he leads the first was six it five or six laps. Yeah, exactly. Before crashes out, comes back in, says, "Don't worry, uh, Hervé, I've figured it out." And lived up to it. I mean, he was unfortunate, I suppose, not to win a race this year, but he, he got his podiums. Uh, he was a consistent threat. Uh, again, he did a lot with with intelligence, with tyre management. One of the things I think he learned, especially in 2016 on the Moto2 bike, was uh, saving his tyres and managing his tyres for the second half of the race, and that paid off in spades for uh, for his uh, uh, for the start of his MotoGP career. And now we're all wondering which factory is going to take him, um, because, unless Valentino Rossi retires, which he doesn't want to. Let's just play devil's advocate here. If we were to listen to, say, Cal Crutchlow, he would tell you that the Yamaha is the most neutral bike on the grid. It's the easiest to get to grips with. Um, was Zarco was walking into a French team? Was it a case of just being in the right place at the right time? Um, uh, yes, he certainly had things his way. He certainly had it a lot easier than uh, than Tito Rabat did. You know, jumping onto the Honda, which is obvious that uh, that the the Honda is a terrible bike to uh, to have to ride or a very difficult bike to ride to, to, to truly master because you look at, you know, you look at the results of it, you look at the results of Jack Miller. I mean, Jack Miller, he got a win in uh, exceptional circumstances. Cal Crutchlow got a couple of wins uh, last year and actually did really well last year. This year he crashed a lot. So the bike is just really, really sensitive and difficult. So yes, Zarco had everything in his way, but still to do what he did against the competition that he did, Every year we start, uh, every race, you start thinking Zarco can be a factor here. And for a rookie to do that, for him to be a factor... On a satellite bike. On a satellite bike, yeah, it's it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a big thing. Yeah, and I think even if you look at the other side of the Tactual Garage, we saw Folger surprise a lot of people. I don't think anyone thought that we were going to see Folger challenge Mark Marquez around Saxon Ring. But we, we did see it, you know, that Yamaha is probably the easiest bike for a rookie to jump onto but you still have to jump onto it and get the most from it mm. and uh, you know Zarco definitely surprised all of us to be able to jump in and just be that competitive I think everyone thought particularly by the end of his Moto2 tenure that he could jump onto a MotoGP bike and he'll have some very good races but not to sustain it over the course of the season like he did yeah. and uh, definitely that was you know a very big surprise to everyone but I was talking to a few riders you mentioned the team going into a French team Neil and I was talking to quite a few riders and engineers at Valencia and I was asking them you know did, did you expect this to happen with Zarco did you think that you know the most important thing for him is to have that team around him to have people that, that care for him around him if you look at the Tactois team of all the MotoGP class teams you always look at Hervé as being the one team boss that's always willing to put his arm around someone always willing to give them encouragement even if it's just encouragement to us journalists we even get that from Harvey and if you look at Johan in the past there was always a question and I asked him myself is he going to be able to work outside of the IO system and uh, you know I talked to quite a few people about that in Valencia and they all said you know what a few years ago definitely would have agreed on that 
but winning two world championships gives you that confidence that you know how to do it regardless of who's working around you. Yeah, I agree. And I think what really stood out this year was uh, his temperament in certain situations, certain high pressure situations where you can tell that he's been in a world championship fight, you know, for the best part of two previous years. I mean, you look at, um, at Qatar, there was a 45 minute delay because of showers of rain. Uh, you look at what the other rookies did at the start of that race and they either fluffed their starts or, you know, they were nowhere early on and, and Zarko was there attacking from the very first moment. Um, you look at Le Mans where he had the massive pressure of a home crowd and he was under the spotlight and he sort of blew up really in 2016, crashed out of the race, admitted that uh, it had all got to his head. And what does he do this year? He shows up and he uh, gives a thrilling performance in the two qualifying sessions and then finishes a second in the race um he seems to be able to manage pressure very very well and do things in his way i remember that there was a moment um where seasoned moto gp riders like davizioso were actually looking at what zarko was doing and saying oh yeah i guess we can do that actually i guess we can make that soft tire work for a, an entire qualifying session and not have to pit during during it you know things like that where it's uh you know he's actually taking um experienced riders making them sit up and take notice. And that, that yeah, was really something. That to me is the definition of a special rider, a rider who actually changes the game around him. That's what Zarko did. And yeah, he was just unflappable. Yeah. Pro- he's probably the best uh, the, the best adjective to describe him. He, he kept his calm. And you, <laughs> Neil. Well, thank you for asking, Dave. Um, I'm gonna, We're interested. We care. I'm going to go with uh, with Moto2, the Moto2 class. Um, I must admit that after the four guys, Zarko, Lowe's, Folger and Rins moved up to MotoGP. Um, I thought there was perhaps a bit of a dearth of talent. I've never particularly rated Alex Marquez in the past, and to see him being talked off as maybe one of two title challengers, I thought it was a little bit uninspiring before the season got underway. Um, admittedly, there was a few decent races early on, but uh, what was it? Hareth was a real stinker. You know, it was just a terrible race. And at that point, I thought, well, this is this is just going to set the tone for the rest of the year. But from Le Mans onwards, um, I think we saw a really good Moto2 race um, most weekends, more often than not. And we saw some really vintage encounters and we saw some interest through KTM coming back, well, coming into the class, being very, very competitive, getting to the stage at the end of the season where they were the, the sort of the dominant force. Um, we had some interesting rookies with Banyaya, with Binder. Uh, we had some old names that we thought were maybe washed up and, and written off, like guys like Pacini. Uh, showing that they can still fight for podiums and race wins. Um, and we had a, a deserving champion in, in Franco Morbidelli, a guy who I think can do really well in MotoGP in the future. Um, and okay, I'll, Thomas Ludi's championship challenge fell away in the end and, and it kind of maybe uh, went out with a little squeak rather than a bang. But um, at the same time, I think uh, Moto2 as a whole, uh, I would give it two thumbs up for, for 2017. Uh, yeah, and I think that was one of the big surprises, as you said, Neil, and uh, a good choice for that as well. I think it's worth us mentioning one of the surprises of the year, KTM and the progress they made this year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I know. But then I guess, is that a surprise, judging by, you know, looking at uh, what they've done in the past in other categories? Uh, perhaps a discussion for another day. Now, moving swiftly on, we're going to go swiftly to the biggest disappointment of the year. And I'll start with you, David. What disappointed you... Uh, the most in 2017. Well, th- there are a lot of candidates. Yamaha, what Yamaha did was was, was fairly disappointing. You were expecting certainly after Maverick Vinales won. What was it? Three of the first four races. The, 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 yeah, three of the first five races. You expected that, them to be. But actually, uh, I think 
I would have to say Jorge Lorenzo because Lorenzo came in onto the Ducati. He came in as the as the favourite. He's being paid a lot of money if uh, if the uh, paddock knitting sewing circle is to be believed. Um, sort of twelve and a half million a, a season. That's a lot of money. Um, uh, there were a lot of expectations. This bike is obviously competitive. We saw even at the end of last year we saw that the bike was competitive because both Ianoni and Dovizioso won. But basically Lorenzo was nowhere for the first half of the season until he got his uh, until he got the wings once he got the winglet or the aerodynamic package as we must uh, as we must refer to it um uh, once he got the once he got his wings once he got that that front end feeling that pushed the the the, the front uh, uh through especially through fast turns that gave him a lot more confidence and he could ride something a little bit more like himself and you could see him he was changing his style all throughout the year and by the end of the year uh, season he was basically at the level you would expect him to be. But it did take him 18 races to get there. And I think that's definitely, for a rider like that, he he shouldn't take that long to uh, to adapt. I, I also think that the, the step from the Yamaha to the Ducati, maybe from the Ducati to the Yamaha, is probably the biggest change imaginable because they require such radically different riding styles. But even then, it was not, um, uh, it was not fantastic. Okay. Steve, do you agree? Yeah, 100%. I think David mentioned there the riding styles. If you look at Lorenzo, I don't think he ever used a rear brake whenever he was on the Yamaha. Suddenly he had to use a lot of rear brake this year, had to change pretty much everything about himself. And it took a long time for him to actually show anything like himself. Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be, I'm sure he still wakes up in the middle of some nights and uh, in his sort of nightmare sees David Tarlotzi's face at Assen during that qualifying <laughs> when he was 21st and the camera just kept panning to the, the Ducati garage and we saw Tarlotzi giving his full uh, face of thunder impression, um, which, uh, which you know, I guess showed exactly what he was feeling inside. Um, Steve, would you say, was Lorenzo your biggest disappointment of the year? No, like to be honest, uh, whenever I said uh, Antonelli is my biggest surprise, that wasn't the biggest surprise. The biggest surprise is my biggest disappointment of the year and it's Maverick Vinales. Like we spent the whole of last winter looking at him in Valencia, hearing about how quick he was at Sepang, then going to the Sepang test, the Phillip Island test, the Qatar test, going to Qatar, going to Argentina. He was mega. He was dominant. And then suddenly he has the crash in Coda and he's able to pick up the win in Le Mans. But then you go through just a horrendous summer where Yamaha lost their way, Vinales lost his way. And if you had said after Le Mans that he'd be an afterthought in the championship, people would have been taken out of the paddock straight away. He was, for me, the biggest disappointment of the season. Would it not be better to say Yamaha was the biggest disappointment? Because, I mean, I, you look at the results of the year and I think... Phillip Island and Valencia side before Phillip Island, Maverick had the beating of Rossi in every race since Assen. So through that dark, difficult period, he was getting the most out of that package, more than his teammate. Well, you could say that, but to be honest, coming into the season, we all expected him to have the upper hand on Rossi. You know, when you look at the winter testing, he was he was that much better and if Yamaha lost their way, maybe some of that comes from he's not given the direction that they need as well. Yeah, well, I guess that is something that uh, has to be called into question Maverick's uh, technical input and development direction. You could say maybe wasn't quite what it needed to be this year. No, I, I mean, it, honestly, I think there was just a lot of confusion in Yamaha about uh, about who to follow us. But the, the problem was that um, Maverick was so bloody quick from the start. He was so fast at the start of the year, um, all through the first uh, the first few races. That that was what really caused uh, caused the problems. And it was wasn't until we got to Jerez and uh, a track with you know just no grip at all uh, that we found out that the, that the bike just doesn't work when there's uh, when there's no grip well it doesn't work unless of course you're Joanne Zarco 
and that's the one thing I was going to mention there as well. Like if you look at what happened when Zarco jumped on the bike, he talked about how it did everything great yes. that we'd heard Vinales talking about how it did everything bad, you know, and that lack of direction or that lack of input. Vinales could very well be one of those riders that can just jump on a bike and instantly adapt to it, instantly figure a way to make it work. He doesn't need it to work in a specific way like a Lorenzo or like a couple of other riders. Maybe Vinales can make anything work. At the start of the season, he certainly made it work. And that's why, for me, as the year progressed, fair enough, there is a rate of development that goes on through a season. But for me, dipping in and out of the paddock through the season, he went from he went from being the big dog to suddenly looking like a lost puppy mm. whenever I turned up at, uh, I think, Silverstone and Aragon, and then particularly at the end of the season in Valencia. Yeah, there, I guess there were some races in the year that when it was bad, it was really bad. And you could just see, like you were saying about Davizioso, having the, the correct approach, having the correct temperament, uh, knowing what to expect in a race weekend, there were some times when Maverick, you could just see he was being far too aggressive, getting far too emotional, and he was never going to be able to perform in a sort of, when his head was like that. In Valencia especially, you looked at qualifying, he was, you know, shaking his head and shaking his fists, and you just thought, the boy's lost. Yeah, I mean, There's the, no coming back from this. Yeah, there were there were times when we went in, where we actively dreaded going to a Maverick Vinales media debrief, because he'd sit there, like a, uh, well, in fact, he sat there exactly like I did when I was about 17 and um, uh, and being a Mardi teenager um, when everything wasn't going his way. So, um, yeah, but I think, I think, I suspect that Maverick Vinales learned an awful lot this year and it's going to be very interesting to see, to see what, what happens next year. Yeah, and I still think there were performances this year, even when things yeah. weren't going that well, that he showed real resolve, real mental, um, okay, there was obviously times where mentally he wasn't quite in the right frame of mind, but sometimes where mentally he showed that he could cope with the pressure. I'm thinking of that wet race in Mizano. That was a, that was a great ride. Um, a couple of races where you just think his race craft maybe wasn't what it needs to be, like Mugello or Silverstone. He probably had the, the bike and the package to win in those days but finished second um but yeah i agree i think maverick will definitely come back stronger than this and, and you know that he is not going to rest over the winter at all you know yeah. um so yeah so moving swiftly on my disappointment of the year uh, i'm going to say andre you know because uh this time last year we had seen what happened at valencia at the test there we saw what happened at uh harass test you know was fast in both places he's uh you know, he's a very aggressive rider. You kind of thought, here's a team that's going to be built around him. He was allowed to bring his crew chief over. Um, some of the management in Suzuki are Italian. You know, and he, you know, uh, communicates mainly in Italian. So that was obviously going to help him out. And, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a bike that just finished fourth in the world championship uh, this time a year ago. And it wasn't just like he had a few bad results. It was he really stunk the place out for a good four months, five months of the season. Um, really from, I guess, uh, well, from Qatar, really. He had a decent ride in, in Kota, I think. But then from there, it was just desperate until Aragon. And uh, admittedly, there's definitely some light um, at the end of the tunnel. And Suzuki, I think, are in a pretty good place at the moment. And I expect Ian only to be, you know, pretty solid next year. But there were races this year that he was just, you would describe his, his showings as desperate. You know, like finishing 16th in Barcelona or I think he was last in both of the free practice sessions in Germany on the Friday. Uh, he retired out of the Misano race from last place because his, his leathers were too tight. And I mean, there was just a litany of excuses that... You don't expect of an absolute thoroughbred rider. And so, yeah, Yenone was my disappointment of the year. Yeah, and I know from talking to some people inside the Suzuki team that what they told me was for most of the season, Yenone didn't have confidence in his 
the team around him, his crew chief and different things like that. And once he found that, suddenly in that final third of the season, he made a big step forward. And inside the team, they went from talking about, we've got to make changes within the crew to suddenly, oh no, Inone still got all those talents that made us all think he could be right up there on a par with you know the aliens of the class. So he's been able to find that again. Suzuki's got a lot of confidence in him again. But the one thing that kept cropping up through the entire season for Suzuki and for the last year has been just the direction within the team and the infighting within the team. There's a big cultural clash in there. There's another problem as well, which was Alex Rins. I mean, basically, Andrea, uh, Andrea Iannone was without a teammate for probably the first half of the season because Rince was uh, was still injured and it took him a long time uh, to get fit again. So there was a lot of um, uh, uh, a lot resting on Iannone's shoulders. Uh, to be perfectly frank, he he didn't stand up to it. He couldn't he couldn't cope with the pressure. I mean, you saw for me Barcelona was the biggest disappointment for him because uh, you know he's going backwards and then all of a sudden Silvan Gintoli. The, the test rider bought in a replacement rider to brought in to replace Rince. Um, starts catching him, starts going faster, and uh, Ian only suddenly finds half a second. That's that was the real measure of what uh, of where Ian only was. Exactly of the effort being put in. Yes. Now we have to move swiftly on. Big one coming up now, Jens. I'm going to start with you on this, Steve. Um, the race of the year. Now we have quite a lot to choose from. It has to be said. There were maybe six, seven races that really stand out as as memorable vintage encounters. What was yours? Well, as we said at the top of the show, Neil, this is the season that just every race seemed to get better and better than the last. Now, I will concede that we actually had a bit of a chat beforehand on this, and uh, we've all come to the pretty much the complete agreement that Phillip Island was possibly the best race any of us had seen. But for me, I'm going to put down Motegi as my choice for the race of the year just because of what Davi did in that race. The performance of him and Marquez in the West really was just uh, something to behold. The can is out of the bag. The Paddock Pass podcast review show is rigged. <laughs> Steve English has given it all away. But <laughs> David, uh, Motegi, it was something else. Dominic. It really was something else. And especially uh, that was the race where Marquez and Dovichoso were pushing each other on to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to ever higher levels. Because I think it was uh, uh, Petrucci who was, um, uh, who was there. And Petrucci saw them both come past and just knew, there's no way. At first he thought, okay, you know, I can be in this. And then they were both came past and it's like, there's no way I I can stay with these boys. They're just they're just a cut above. So yeah, um, uh, Mategi was truly e- exceptional. It was an exceptional display by two riders who were both riding uh, above themselves. Mark Marquez, the, the last lap, he loses half a second because uh, because he you know he nearly loses the front um, or oh, no the rear. I think he uh, around uh, in the first half of the track saves that. That ends up costing the race, but the only reason he's actually losing losing that is because he's having to push so hard. I mean, Dovi was pushing him so hard. Yeah, and Dovi, you know, there was I think three or four occasions in that race where Mark turned around, looked at Dovi, tried to make a break, and Dovi just stayed with him and was able to match him the whole way through. You know, it really was watching a rider kind of perform above and beyond what you thought he was capable of in the past. Um, would you would you say Mateki was your race of the year, Div? Well, I mean, no, the race for the year for for, for me was was Philip Island also because it sort of it was the same it was almost the same race as, as Philip Island two thousand and fifteen, only it was the same race but without the bitter aftertaste that was left with the events of Sepang of that year. So uh, I mean, you know, it was 
no holes barred, um, no prisoners taken. It was uh, 70 passes or 73 passes or something yeah, between the was, top eight alone. Was, yeah, yeah it, it, completely insane. Everyone afterwards was saying, well, yeah, it was a little bit dangerous, but the, it was just the trust, yeah. the, the, the trust that they all had in each other, you know, not passing, not crashing, understanding that they're not going to be, be knocking each other off. That was um, that was what was uh, so uh, so exceptional. And you look at some of the some of the some of the passes there, some of the places that people pass around around the outside of turn one. That is um, that demands great for testicular fortitude. Just getting through that corner at speed uh, demands testicular fortitude. But to actually contemplate trying to pass someone there is um, uh, verges on insanity. So that was um, it was uh, and it was just spectacular. And then just for a little bit of added interest, there's the there's the Ducatis, which were mm. absolutely nowhere and really absolutely nowhere. Despite I think Dovi was uh, in 2016, I think he was fourth or fifth. Yeah, I mean, fourth, he yeah. was yeah, he was he was not a million miles off. Uh, and yet this year they just couldn't get the bike to work around there. So that was just, it, yeah, it was real entertainment. Yeah, eight riders, I think, uh, within two seconds for 20, 21 laps yeah. out of uh, the 27. It was, yeah, it was really great. Until Mark Marcus decides it's time to pull the pin. Exactly, until he until he cleared off. Yeah, and I think having guys like Miller and Zarco, Ian Oney right up at the front, fighting for the lead was uh, was something that really added to the intrigue in that. Um, I am going to go with Assen, with Valentino Rossi's astonishing uh, single victory of the season uh, in the Netherlands. Your home race, Dave. Yes. Um, it was just, I think, a race that was as dramatic as they come because you had a, a four-way fight at first. Um, you had Zarco, Marquez, Rossi and Petrucci all in there scrapping and it got a bit tense, a bit tetchy with Rossi and Zarco nearly colliding. Then you had the shower of rain and that really threw, um, you know, a spanner in the works and um, you saw Rossi and Petrucci pulling away and then Marquez dropped back. Zarco pitted. I think you had Dovizioso come forward and then later on Crutchlow and there was just like lots of movements and the race changed shape so many times. The narrative of the race kind of changed and you didn't really know which way it was going to go and um, I thought it was just a, an example where Rossi's determination and grit to, to sort of get the best out of the situation was laid bare and it showed that his desire, uh, you know, to, to get that win, to break. I think it was 13 months he had gone without winning at that point. Um, it was just absolutely sensational. And it, it, I think maybe if you watch the race back, it wouldn't seem so spectacular. But when you're watching it live and you know that rain's falling and there's certain parts certain corners in the, the final sector of that circuit, for example, which are taking at 120, 130 miles an hour, the tension that you feel, you know. Yeah, exactly. It, it, I mean, go, going through through uh, Ramshook, the, the final very, very fast left-hander before the, before the chicane, uh, uh, that's seriously, seriously quick. And I think, yeah, Rossi won that one uh, on experience, on ambition, and on will, on just understanding. That was, um, it was exceptional. And what I enjoyed most about that was um, Danilo Petrucci's face after losing because um, he would been, he'd been absolutely ecstatic after getting on the podium for the first time in, uh, in Mugello. And then at Aston, it looked like he'd, uh, you know, someone had just stolen his ice cream. It was, um, he was really, really just utterly destroyed that he hadn't been able to win because he felt he could have he won. So. Yeah, yeah. And I think when we left Aston, uh, the top four guys were separated by 11 points. It was the first sort of uh, race weekend you came away from thinking, wow, this championship really is special. I mean, yeah, this four guys could could uh, could triumph in this. Okay, fantastic. So moving swiftly on to the final category with the overtake of the year. Um, yeah, 
bit of a different one. Um, we've had a little think about this, and I'm going to start because um, I haven't done so yet. And I'm going to go with uh, Matteo Pacini's last lap assault on, I think it was Thomas Ludi and Alex Marquez at Mugello, uh, the last lap of his home Grand Prix. And it wasn't just uh, that he passed uh, both of them on the same lap. It was that he passed one of them at one corner at uh, the Casanova Savelli. I think he passed uh, Alex Marquez going down there. And at the very next corner, he lined up Ludi on the entry to Arabiata 1 and he made a stunning move into, into that one of the most fearsome corners in the, in the entire calendar. Um, on the last lap, I think he, he lost first going into the, the first turn, uh, was demoted to third. He had been the kind of guy dominating the race at that point or perhaps showing the, that he had the, the most in, the, in his back pocket. And you thought at that moment, okay, maybe it's going away. But uh, to show that sort of resolve um, in the last lap, what a way to win his home Grand Prix. And I think it was his first win since 2009 as well. Um, and I, it, was, it was a few times that the, the press room erupted this year, but I think that was the one that stands out in my mind when everyone just went a bit crazy uh, cheering Matea across the line. Yeah, and it was one of those moves, Neil, that it was just a video game move. Like, I don't think anyone's ever seen someone... We've seen people make a move through Casanova or into Arabiata, but never do two people in two corners like that at that section of the track. It was it was mega move from Pacini, I think. Yeah. Uh, after that race, I think pretty much everyone in MotoGP all sent out a tweet because I think Dorna put up a couple of videos of it and everyone sent out a tweet that was literally just, just give the man overtake of the year. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. David, did, would you give him the overtake of the year? Well, just just before we move on quickly, there's just one Rossi quote that he was asked about that at the end of uh, the end of the, the Sunday in Mugello, and he said it's uh, he did the race that every Italian rider lies lies awake in their bedrooms at night and dreams off. And I thought that that was just a nice way to kind of uh, describe what Pacini did. But yeah, sorry, David, would you would you go with that as your overtake of the year? Only. To be contrary, um, um, <laughs> it's not like think, you. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean it was a fantastic, absolutely fantastic move. It was fantastic last lap, and like you say, you know, Moto Two has been has been a really good series. Uh, my favourite pass was not so much a pass as a defence uh, as a defensive pass. Was Austria that li- that final corner where Marquez uh, uh, tries to win it in that last corner, dives up there. Any other rider gets flustered by it. He tries. He dives up the inside of um, Dovizioso, but Dovizioso sees oh. He's never going to make the corner, so he just backs off a little, picks it up, and uh, uh, and almost wanders into uh, uh, to take victory. That encapsulates Dovizioso's season because he won it just with intelligence. He allowed Mark Marquez to hoist himself with his own petard. He let um, uh, it was a, it was a jujitsu move, if you see what I mean. You know, he let. Um, uh, he let Mark Marquez give him the win, and that—I mean—it was just the, the way he handled the whole uh, the, that whole pass was exceptional. Yeah, and I think we had expected Mark to make a move the corner before that, the penultimate one, but Davizioso defended that really successfully, and then basically gave Marquez no option, which in itself was uh, an achievement. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Steve. Uh, well, mine wasn't uh, a bit like David. It wasn't really an overtaking move, but for me, it was a series of overtaking moves and just sheer racecraft from uh, Joan Mir in the final race of the year at Valencia. He falls back down through the pack and he's just able to pick off one rider after another all the way up to finish second. And he didn't get overtaken by anyone, which in Moto3 is just pretty remarkable, particularly with the way that the race unfolded in Valencia. Uh, yeah, Juan Mir. I mean, there was probably uh, a whole selection of moves and overtakes that we can um, envision um, being 
nominated for this uh, this particular award. But um, yeah, Steve, I can't really argue with your Valencia. In fairness to Juan Mir, we could have put him down for Rider of the Year. We could have put down any of his victories for Race of the Year. We could have put him down for Surprise of the Year. I put him down for Overtake of the Year, but certainly not for Disappointment of the Year. He was just remarkable the whole way through the season. Yeah, and judging by his testing times in Moto2, he's going to be right up there at the front, I, th- I expect, quite a few of the races next year you would have to imagine and I was down at the Herat Moto 2 test and uh, the one thing about Juan Mir was he he still looked very aggressive on the bike he was still riding it like a Moto 3 bike just willing to jump himself off the bike on the way into corners and really just move his weight around the same way he would on a Moto 3 bike so he's still a raw diamond right now in Moto 2 but you'd be surprised if we get to Qatar and he hasn't polished out quite a lot of those edges absolutely yeah excellent so uh, anything else to add gentlemen uh, I don't think so, except to watch out for Juan Mir next year because it's, it's going to be really, um, it's going to be interesting. I think Moto Two is going to be, uh, it's going to be fascinating. We've got the the KTM's uh, Oliveira versus Binder. Binder is fit. Um, uh, Moto GP. I mean, can it get any better? Uh, Suzuki is going to be better next year. So uh, uh, and Iannone is the, uh, going to be on that bike for the second year. Uh, the Aprilia should be better. Yamaha will have to have fixed their problems. They have to have fixed their problems. So um, uh, the only concern is that um, uh, Mark Marquez was was happy after getting off the 2018 Honda for the um, for the first time, which is the first time he's been happy getting off uh, the the following year's bike. I think since since 2013, since he joined the uh, the series. So yeah, it's it's going to be another year where we wonder who's going to stop um, uh, who's going to be able to stop uh, Mark Marquez. Yeah, the others are definitely going to need to bring their A game. Okay, fantastic. Well, that brings our review of 2017 MotoGP season to a close. Uh, I'd like to thank both of my guests very much for uh, for coming in and uh, sharing their opinions, their their thoughts on this uh, this issue. David, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you very much, Steve. Yep, thanks very much, Neil. Okay, look very much to uh, speaking to you guys again uh, later in the year and also in 2018, uh, where we will continue with the Paddock Pass podcast. And you should follow us basically on social media to, to have an idea of when that comes out. Uh, the usual protocol here, that is follow us on Twitter, if you could. That is... Um, At Paddock Pass Pod. Excellent, David. It's also to follow us on Facebook, which is... Facebook.com slash Paddock Pass Podcast. And... If you're listening to us on iTunes, we really... I think it's called Apple Podcasts nowadays. Oh, is it really? It okay. is, it is. And uh, But despite the fact that it's changed its name, it still doesn't mean that we don't need fantastic reviews and ratings and all the rest of it. So do please leave us reviews and ratings on uh, all of your various podcast-catching uh, um, uh, software programs, websites, whatever. Okay, well, I couldn't have said it better myself. So thank you very much, listener, for tuning in to this latest episode. We will speak to you soon. Goodbye. Oh, hello. Hello. How are we all doing? Oh, bugger. Neil. Yeah, this works fine. And it also now records my true feelings for Neil.